0: Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Nancy Guthrie. We discuss her newest book, God Does His Best Work with Empty, which is something she came to personally understand in the years following the loss of her daughter. At six months old, and then her youngest son at six months old, due to Zellweger syndrome. Nancy dives into a few of the ways God fills our emptiness as seen in Scripture, and how she and her husband use these truths when ministering to heartbroken parents during the respite retreats that they host. I'll be honest with you, Nancy was a dream guest for me. Why? Because I have sat under her teaching of God's Word and have a deep appreciation for how she handles the Word and how she so generously shares her knowledge and depth of insight with women around the world. I have no doubt you will feel the same after listening to our conversation. But before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Hope and Vine for making this episode possible. At Hope and Vine, every item tells a story and every story has a purpose. That is why every piece of jewelry and apparel is designed to remind and encourage you to believe who you were created to be. Not only that, but your purchases help young women who have aged out of foster care successfully transition to a secure and stable future. The young women work as artisans in a positive and affirming environment while creating these products. Each item tells a story. Every story has a purpose. So tell your story in a beautiful way when shopping at www.hope-vine.myshopify.com. That's hope-vine.myshopify.com. And at checkout, enter grace-2020 through December 31st to receive 15% off your purchase. That's grace2020 at checkout through December 31st to receive 15% off your purchase. Okay, friends, let's jump into my conversation with Nancy Guthrie. Good afternoon, Nancy. Thank you so much for being on the Grace Enough podcast.
1: Well, so grateful to be with you and your listeners.
0: It is an honor for me, as so many of us, we feel like you are kind of our spiritual mother in a lot of ways, and so um, it's an honor to have you. And but for people who may not know you, uh, will you introduce yourself and your family and tell everybody what you do?
1: My day to day. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And I work from home, I spend most of my days um, writing, uh, working on uh, preparing to speak or teach or working on a book project or a blog project. For the past five years, I've done a podcast called Help Me Teach the Bible. Mm -hmm. I just brought that to a conclusion. No way! Yeah. I missed it. I'm not recording any more new episodes, but they're starting from the beginning. We're airing them for all those people who maybe found the podcast late. So um, my husband works at home too. My husband publishes kids' musicals for the church called, a business called Little Big Stuff Music.
0: Nice.
1: So, uh, and my son works for him.
0: Oh, at least he did <laughs>
1: until a couple of months ago. Um, as you can imagine, with COVID-19, yeah. churches aren't really doing kids' musicals, inviting grandma and grandpa to come sit in the That's audience right. and watch them. So, yeah, in many ways, my husband's business came to a real halt in March, and he had to let our son go, which was hard. Mm. Uh, but we're seeing a little bit of it come back to start yeah. uh, for Christmas and... We're really hopeful it comes back more after the first of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting because I know, like, even at our school, we don't have our piano recitals, and so now everybody's trying to navigate, well, can we do a piano recital? Mm -hmm. Can we do a musical? Do you, I mean, can we even invite anybody to come and watch this, or do we just video it? And so it's just so strange. Well, and that's the thing we were talking about a little before we started recording was just how all of your stuff has gone online, and so tell Everybody, because I'm going to be attending what your next workshop is. Okay, well, uh, in the fall of
1: 2019, I launched a biblical theology workshops for women.
0: That's so great. So
1: for the first uh, year, I had about 17 workshops around the country, and at the workshops, uh, I train women how to understand the Bible as one story with a coherent message centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we work on telling the story that the Bible tells. You know, a lot of us, we know stories, and that was me for most of my life growing up in in the church. You know, I knew lots of stories in the Bible, but I could have never connected them to each other or, you know, across books or across testaments. And so we work on understanding the Bible as one story centered on the person and work of Christ. And then we look at major themes that the divine author has written into his book that help us to then get the message that that divine author intends for us to get, which Saves us oftentimes from making much about what the Bible doesn't make much of, and mm. helps us to make much of what the Bible makes much of. So yeah. these workshops, I held them around the country, and then I put together a second season in parts of the country that I didn't hit in the first right. season. But yes, you know, <laughs> everyone March and knows, April is, everybody <laughs> knows how that story ends, right? So uh, all of last springs and this falls have workshops. Workshops have shifted into 2021, and so I've been actually even this morning been going back and forth with a couple of those workshop hosts, saying, "Okay, what what are you thinking? Um, You know, how many can we seat now? It's probably less than we could before. Those kinds of things." But I'm looking forward. I've got uh, 21 workshops scheduled in the country and internationally in 2021, and I look forward to going out to do this because it's just It's so much fun to be in a room of women, and I hope this was your experience when you came to a workshop, Amber, that you're in this room of women, and many of them, they love Christ and they love the Bible, but maybe they're not familiar with biblical theology. And as that is introduced, there's just so much joy Mm -hmm. in the room at seeing Christ through the lens of some of these biblical themes. It's really fun.
0: Yeah, it was super cool for me in the sense of I was getting ready to speak at our women's retreat for our church not long after that. And I knew what their overall theme was. But as soon as I was at your workshop, I was like, I can take that theme from the beginning of God's word to the end, hitting on some of the main stories. But the theme was brokenness and beauty and how those kind of work together. And so starting from the fall and going all the way up through, I don't want to say all the way to Revelation, but really until the resurrection. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people came to me afterwards and they were like, well, you just, you know, send me that first part of your talk because the way that you weaved that through, all of it was awesome. And I'm like, that's Nancy. She helped <laughs> me learn to do that. Thank well, <laughs> I'm glad to get to serve you that way. I bet that was a great talk. It was really good to... um for me to sit down and look at that in so many ways to just point out that you know what God he everybody knows he uses imperfect people to do things but like you said I feel like we put it in clumps and so we forget that that's what he's doing all the way through minus Christ Mm. and so it's really good to know but we're here we're going to talk about your new book and I feel like it is a It seems to me of all the things that you've written, that it is really born out of part of what your story is with losing children yourself and these respite retreats that you and your husband do. And so the book is called God Does His Best Work with Empty. And so for people who may not be as familiar with how your journey started with that, share a little bit about your family's backstory and the respite retreats.
1: Certainly. So we have a son, Matt, who is 30. And when Matt was eight years old, I gave birth to a daughter named Hope. And Hope was born with a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. Mm. Uh, We didn't know during the pregnancy she would be impacted. But once she was born, it was obvious. uh, There were a lot of little things wrong. She had club feet and she had a real large soft spot and she was very lethargic. Uh, tests revealed that she couldn't see or hear or respond. And on her second day of life, the geneticist told us, "Okay, we think she has Zellweger syndrome, and there is no treatment for that and no cure. And most children with this syndrome live less than six months." So that was devastating to us. Um, yeah. I, 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 I was, I had really looked forward to having a daughter
0: mm-hmm.
1: who would be my friend in my old age Yeah, and yeah. on her second day of life began to reckon with the reality that that was not going to be the case for our daughter Hope. And in fact, Hope was with us about six months. She was with us 199 days. And then we said goodbye to her. And now t- to have a child with this syndrome means that my husband and I must both be carriers of the recessive gene trait for the syndrome. And so that means that whenever we have a child, that child would have a 25% chance of having the fatal syndrome. So we had, it meant that we had a difficult decision to make after we had hope as to whether or not we would have more children. And honestly, it was difficult. I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, uh, Hope's life had been such a joy to us. That might be hard for people to understand, but she was a joy to us just to have her with us. And so, We didn't immediately say, okay, well, we would never want to do that again. But then also our lives aren't just us. And there was our son Mm -hmm. who had lived in the house for six months waiting for his sibling to die and then had lived a lot of months with a really sad mom, which I promise you wasn't very much fun. And then there was our parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Hope's death had been devastating to our parents. So we decided to take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. And about a year and a half after Hope died, we discovered that it didn't work and that I was pregnant again. I went through prenatal testing and we found out when I was about 15 weeks pregnant that this child, a son this time, would also be born with the fatal syndrome, with Zellweger syndrome. So we then went through that pregnancy knowing that we were going to have a child who was going to be with us just a really short time. And our son Gabriel was born in July 2001. And was with us uh, a similar amount of time. Hope was yeah. he was with us 183 days. Wow. And then we said goodbye to him. So out of that, um, I mean, first of all, it just, it changed us as people. Yeah. Uh, In, in so many ways, uh, has shaped who we are as a family for good and for bad, I suppose. Yeah. Um while i was pregnant with gabe i actually took a talk that i had given to the women at my church during hope's life on the book of job and i began to turn that into what became my first book called holding on to hope mm. a pathway through suffering to the heart of god so i i began writing and talking about this and i guess i'm still kind of doing that you mentioned respite retreats in 2009 we started hosting weekend retreats for couples who have lost children. In fact, we just had one this weekend. I'm still putting things away. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was a little tricky. We had two this spring. Once again, we had to cancel. And so I just began looking really only like five or six weeks ago, like, where could we have this at a place that would be essentially open air? And so I found a camp that had this building that has five garage doors along the side of the building. So, you know, can't get much better ventilation than that and so we had 12 couples come and spend the weekend with us from around the country and honestly amber it's really hard yeah it's really hard to have that much sorrow walking in the door Hmm. uh that much sorrow in need of help a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. frustration anger questions Um, but over the weekend as they get the relief and I think maybe this last weekend maybe in a sense more than ever because so many of these couples have been grieving in such isolation because of the virus so you know several of them lost children in like January and so they've essentially been home and been unable to interact very much with other people about it so it was a great joy and relief to them to be around 12 other couples who get it, who, who understand what they're going through. And that's really the gift of respite retreat. And so we're really grateful to get to offer that ministry and really grateful to God for the way he uses it in the lives of people. I mean, to be able to send out a little report yesterday to people who are praying for us and telling them the circumstances of one of the couples beforehand, asking for their prayers, and then to be able to say, we saw a visible tangible turn away from despair Mm -hmm. toward a determination for their family to have joy again. Mm -hmm. And that's really our goal.
0: Right. Right. Well, and I wonder if a lot of these people that attend together, if some of them maintain a bond.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
0: Years and years to come just because of what they received when they showed up.
1: Absolutely. And of course, social media helps with that. But yeah, a lot of them stay very connected.
0: Well, so this idea of God does his best work with empty, how did that come about?
1: Mm. Well, it actually began at the very first respite retreat on Sunday morning. I work my way through five statements of Jesus and the import that they have for those who are grieving. Most of them come out of my book, Hearing Jesus Speak Into Your Sorrow. And at that first respite retreat, I think it was, I, I remember... Uh, just looking around that circle uh, and saying to those couples, I, I know that there is an incredible aching emptiness in your lives. There is an empty bedroom at your house and an empty place at the table and an empty place in the family photo and an empty place in your future plans and your plans for your family And I know that you probably look at that emptiness and you see it as your greatest problem. Mm -hmm. But I want to convince you that that's not how God sees it. That when God looks at this empty place in your life, he sees it as his greatest opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because God does his best work with empty. and that very first time I said it afterwards, my husband said to me, you know what, that's a book. You have to write that book. So it's taken 11 years, but it finally is a little book.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting to me a little bit about it is because it really comes on the heels of saints and scoundrels pretty quickly. And well, so, yeah, not, yeah that, that's that was almost not ideal. That, I was going to say that's probably almost a side road, but I might need to know or want to yeah. know. Maybe the that's better just thing. poor planning. Oh, that's, that's 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 poor planning on my part. That's saying
1: yes to two different publishers. Oh, okay. And uh, initially agreeing to a timeline when they were bo- both books were going to be due and come out about the same time. It Ended up getting to put six months in between them. But but even when that was at the beginning of the year, I know it's going to have Saints and Scoundrels coming out in April. And then this one in September, and I wasn't that happy with that, with them coming yeah. out so soon. But yet now I just think it's a work the Lord has done because who could have dreamed uh, that this would be a year that so many people would relate to profound emptiness? hmm I mean, I I just think that captures what so many people experience, you know, a a sense of craving something you can't have with disappointment, loneliness, isolation, fear about the future, loss. I mean, those are all things that this book talks about and, you know, takes some scripture and applies to those issues. And so, Certainly, well, I didn't see it as ideal timing, I, I, I'm really grateful at this point for how I know already that the Lord has been using it in the lives of people who can really relate, perhaps more profoundly than ever, to this idea of emptiness.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, I agree. And I want to read a little bit of something from the book and have you answer a question. You write, sometimes your sense of emptiness haunts you as an undefined yet relentless ache. At other times, it overwhelms you as an undeniable agony. It is amazing to me how heavy the weight of emptiness can feel, how much room emptiness can take up in our souls, how much pain can be caused by something that isn't even there. And so backing up a little bit, when you think through that, What were some of the ways that you began working through that emptiness yourself when you were in that place? Yeah.
1: Well, one thing I'm really grateful for is the foundation that had been built Mm -hmm. in my life before the losses of two children that gave me a really sure foundation Mm -hmm. for experiencing that. I, I love the story that Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 7. And he describes two men, a wise man and a foolish man. And what's fascinating is to look at these two and to try to figure out, well, what was the real difference in their lives? Because there's a lot that's the same for both of them. It says the word of the Lord came to them. So I think of them both as being two people who are sitting in church week to week. Uh, and and the other thing that was the same for them is that the storm came to both. It came with the same ferocity Mm. in both of their lives. Yeah. Uh, and, but there's a difference for the wise man, Jesus says, and the word of the Lord came to him and it, and it says, and he worked those words into his life or another translation says he put those words into practice. And so even though the storm came into his life, it doesn't mean that he wasn't affected by it, but he wasn't destroyed by it. Mm. Like that foolish man who simply heard the word, but it didn't work. It's, he didn't work it into his life. And therefore, when the storm came, he had no resources, no foundation. Mm. And so he was destroyed by it. And so I just look back at that in my life, which makes me profoundly grateful for growing up in the church mm. and, uh, you know, having had a spent some time invested in God's word most profoundly to just understand who he is and how he yeah. works with his people. And it's not that I didn't have a lot of questions right. when this happened or, or that my faith wasn't challenged. I mean, it's still challenged to this day. And I, I still have questions and things that I don't completely understand, but there was a solid foundation built underneath me in his word. And so that meant that in the midst of loss, you know, as, as we interact with couples uh, and, and other people going through different kinds of grief, you know, everybody has the same essential question, which is why? Mm-hmm. Uh, why did this happen? And people look for an answer to that question in all kinds of different ways. For many people, it's, it's just kind of a generally philosophical question. And so they look to philosophies to try to, Understand for some, it's a circumstantial question, and they want to look around at their circumstances what's happened because of it, what isn't Mm -hmm. happening, and say, Okay, this is why it happened. But for me, I wasn't looking for answers and that kind of thing, I was looking for a scriptural answer to why this happened in my life, and I found so many, and, and they were so helpful. And probably the most significant answer I found. I found in Genesis chapter three. Hmm. Genesis chapter three helps us understand why there is so much suffering in the world because of the impact of sin on this world that infiltrated everything. If you think about uh, what God says to, to Eve, what the impact of the curse is going to be on her. It says she's going to have pain in childbearing. You know, I I think we, Think of that mostly about the pain of labor and delivery but it is so much more than that and uh, it, it it's the pain of yes birth defects and stillbirth and it's the pain of raising a sinful child in a sin saturated world yeah it's the pain of parental disappointment and relational dysfunction i mean all of those things um mm-hmm. So if you ask me, why do you think you've had a child or two children who have been born with a fatal genetic disorder, I would say, because sin has so impacted this world that it has infiltrated even my genetic code.
0: Mm.
1: And that that's the, to me, the most profound answer to the question why. So... I don't know, maybe I got off track for your question no, from me, but no. but that is, you know, it, going to the scriptures yeah. is how I, I have coped with that emptiness. And that's made a profound difference for
0: me. In this book, you take a lot of Bible characters, you know, the wilderness the Israelites in the wilderness, Huldah. Um, well, you may not have done Huldah, but you definitely did Naomi and um you really take this theme of emptiness and you trace it through. And so what what kind of surprised you? I mean, what did you find that really, you know, you thought, I got to put this in there because it's so important. Mm-hmm. It speaks so much to the person who is just really battling that emptiness.
1: Yeah. Well, it begins on actually the very first page of the Bible, which is, you know, if anybody. Th- is is questioning my even my supposition that god does his best work with the empty I, 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 empty i think it's answered on the first page of yeah. the bible because the bible begins and god created the heavens and the earth and it was formless oh, and man. void void empty but if you continue to read just the first chapter of the bible you just realize emptiness was not a problem to god like all he had to do was speak yes and he filled the emptiness he, 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 and he filled the emptiness with such wonderful things, with life and light and beauty and abundance and relationship and purpose and meaning. I mean, it's incredible. And, and so, yeah, so I I started from there and I just kind of kept going, working my way through the Bible, uh, looking at examples of ways he was at work and most profoundly in emptiness. And so, you know, the, the first stop is really the children of Israel. They, they leave Egypt and they have empty stomachs and they're complaining, you know, Yo, you just brought us out into the wilderness to let us die. And what does God do? He begins to rain down manna outside their tents every day. And and when the next generation, 40 years later, is getting ready to enter into the promised land finally, he explains to this next generation why he allowed the previous generation to experience getting hungry and having empty stomachs in the first place. He said, I did this so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds mm. from the mouth of God. Mm. So god was purposeful he wanted to teach them and train them to trust in his provision Mm. to rest in it to rely on it to expect it yeah and it's the same lesson that you and i need (laughs) and it's the same way i think in many ways he works in our cravings our desires that morph into cravings oftentimes Mm. which is the what was the case for the israelites He's training us to trust him. Will you trust in my provision? And if you think of that, think about it. I mean, wasn't that the issue in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? I mean, they'd been given this provision of all of the fruit of all of the trees of the garden, except one. But of course, Eve says, no, I have to have that one. I'm Mm -hmm. not content with God's provision. And so she reaches out. And what's so fascinating, it's also, it's about food. (laughs) It's about food, right? And she's not content with God's provision. Same thing with the Israelites. Yeah. But this prepares us then when we turn to the New Testament and Jesus is led out into the wilderness yeah, and it says he's being led out. Why? To be tested.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what is that first test when Satan comes along? It's about food. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus there, he, he hasn't eaten anything for 40 days and, and Satan tempts him to turn that stone into bread. In other words, he's tempting him to take Provision into his own hands, to refuse to trust in the provision of God. And uh, it, it's, we're so grateful that Jesus responded to that temptation in perfect obedience and yes, that his perfect obedience in regard to trusting God and his provision uh, <laughs> becomes ours because you and I struggle with that.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, let's just talk about fasting. Hmm. <laughs> Do mean- we have to? Exactly. <laughs> I'm like um, 24 hours in, and I am thinking, "Hmm, yeah, it's empty." That's exactly what I'd be focused on. God, I'm mm-hmm. gonna do it anyways. So it's such a good point. Well, you you point out eight ways that we experience emptiness in the book, and one of them is you say God fills our emptiness with His grace, and so you shared a little bit about the Israelites in the wilderness. But how does Naomi's story really demonstrate this truth that God fills our emptiness with his grace?
1: Yeah, it's pretty unique, I think. Uh, You know, we read about Naomi in the book of Ruth, but it's interesting to me that book is called Ruth because in many ways, it's very much about (laughs) Naomi, is it not? I mean, it begins and ends. And Naomi actually uses these words we're looking for because, you know, when she she and her family go off to Moab because their stomachs are empty and they're looking to be filled And but as they've tried to fill themselves, it has not worked as, as they hoped. And so, you know, her husband has died. Her two sons have died and she comes back. She has one of her daughters in law Ruth with her and she sees all of her old friends and they say, you know, Hey, Naomi, welcome home. And she's like, don't even call me that name. Um, call me Mara bitter. She says, I went away full. And I've come back empty. Yeah. So emptiness for her, you know, had to do with her situation, with her family not being everything she wanted and hoped for. And so and she comes back and I guess hoping to experience grace, but at first she just seems so bitter at God. She just says, you know, he's put out his hand against me. Yeah. And over these short four chapters in the book of Ruth. We see God working in her emptiness, and at the end of the, the story, her arms are full. Uh, right. this, this child that Ruth and Boaz have, this child named Obed, is placed into her arms. Now, I think oftentimes we read the book of Ruth just kind of by itself itself. And we don't connect it to what comes right before it and what comes right after it in the Bible, which I think is key to understanding why it is even in there and therefore yeah. what we're really supposed to get out of the story. So if you think about the rest, what's the book right before it judges mm-hmm. and think about how that book ends It ends that in those days, everybody was doing what was right with their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. So there's this huge empty place in the lives of God's Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. They need a leader. They need a godly leader who will lead them in worship and obedience to God. And then we've got the little book of Ruth, all right? And then it's followed by 1 Samuel. And what happens in 1 Samuel? Uh, The people demand a king. And first they get Saul. That doesn't work out so well. (laughs) And then God gives them this kind of king, the kind of king that he wants, a king after his own heart, which is king david and so when we see ruth in between there we realize oh here is god filling the need of his people Mm -hmm. the need for a godly authority the need for a king who will rule over his people in justice and righteousness and so really naomi's story in the book of ruth is about God meeting that great need in yeah. the lives of his people. And that's why the book doesn't end simply with Ruth having a grandchild. It says, Obed beget Jesse and Jesse, Jesse beget, beget David. David. And yeah. and so it ends with saying, here's how God is filling up the need of his people.
0: Well, and I love about Naomi is that if you if you really focus in too, you can read it so fast, but it takes place over a lifetime and it's so easy to forget we read it but it's like it's not like um, naomi was struggling one day and then a year later she woke up and um you know ruth was married and had a baby and they Mm. knew the king was there and so Mm. we lose sight of that sometimes that it can happen over a lifetime we're pretty Um, impatient aren't we oh (laughs) Yes, yes. Being a mom of three young children, I would say in patience is um, definitely a struggle for me. So uh, you clearly, you, you love God's Word. You've been so faithful to teach it. It has been a gift to me and so many women that I know um, to learn from you. And even when I sit and listen to help me teach the Bible and I, can't say that I'm up on a stage teaching the Bible, but I'm certainly, you know, in this space and just talking to women. And so how do do you feel like that developed in you over time? And, you know, you've been so faithful to nurture that and now you're pouring it out, helping other women to learn it and teach it too. And so I don't know, share a little bit about that journey with us.
1: Well, I can so remember when, when we moved to Nashville in 1993, I guess that's when I started attending Bible study fellowship. Me too. I mean, I remember going that first week. And at that point I had a media relig- media relations business based at home. And I had, was very busy with that. And I remember that first week, you know, they asked for the, a pretty big commitment. I mean, you got to commit that you're going to be there every week and you're going to come with your lesson done. And honestly, that to me just seemed like an enormous commitment. Yeah.
0: And at the time it was, if you miss more than like four in a row, you you're know, out baby. Yeah. It's not like that anymore, Nancy. Uh, well, I just,
1: I was, uh, I was, but I was desperate. Yep. I was desperate for something real with God. I was desperate to not feel like a hypocrite, desperate mm-hmm. to not be at church on Sundays, but never in God's word throughout the week. And so I made that commitment and over the eight years that I was in BSF, I mean, the word really went to work in me and changed me. And I remember just sitting there. I sat on the front row every week and just watching, observing the teacher. And the teacher was someone, I mean, she'd actually been at my wedding. I had known her for many years. And, and honestly, you know, it wasn't like it was all about her personality or, mm-hmm. you know, like she had some big personality on stage, you know what I'm saying? Or, right. just, or like this natural upfront thing. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. that at all. It was like she had studied and she was presenting God's word and God was using it. Mm. And I just looked around. And I was like, he's not only using it in my life, he's using it in all these people's lives. And I just remember sitting there and just thinking to myself, I can't imagine doing anything more significant with my life than teaching wow. the Bible. But I also thought to myself. But I will never, uh, I'll never have the ability to do it, mm. the credibility to do it, or the opportunity to do it. I, I just thought, H- how will I ever know enough to do it? I I just could not imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then I went through these experiences with the, the death of my daughter, Hope, and then my son, Gabe, and wrote those books. And so, People begin to ask me to speak, but of course, the thing is, so much of women's ministry in the local church is, you know, having someone with a big old sad story come and tell it, and everybody cries. And yeah, I, you know, I started getting asked a lot to come and speak and tell my story, and so just immediately, it was kind of a crisis to me to figure out, okay. I don't want to just go tell my sad story. I I want to figure out how do I use my story to tell God's story? Mm. How do I, even though they're inviting me to come and tell a story, how do I turn that into an opportunity to teach the scriptures? Because, you know, my story might have the power to move someone, inspire someone, but there's only one story that has the power to make dead people alive. Amen. Amen. And that is the story of the gospel that flows out of the scriptures. So I just was really committed to, yes, I'll come, but, you know, I want to teach some passages of God's word. And so I began to do that. And, you know, uh, teaching the Bible for me, uh, I mean, I think in some ways, maybe I had a few few natural skills, Hmm. but mostly it's been... Just a constant uh, trying to get better at it. Yeah. Trying to get better at it. There, there are skills involved in it uh, that I'm still working on. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll still watch a video of myself or hear a <laughs> recording of myself or something, and I just agonize over little things that I do or ways I said things or whatever, right? So um, I want to be a good steward Ultimately, that, that's, that's the aim of my life is to be a good steward with what God has entrusted to me. And mm. he's entrusted to me a lot of opportunity to do this. Yeah, And uh, to my dying day, I want to be seeking to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to me and not for a return from my kingdom, but a return for his kingdom.
0: Mm.
1: That's what it means to be a steward.
0: Well, I mean, I can't speak for everyone else who's learned under you, but I can certainly speak for myself and um, you have stewarded the gift well in my life. And so I do thank you for that. And speaking of BSF, it's interesting because one of my very best friends from Tampa was the day women's teaching leader there. And um, she's not she just finished I think she's going into her second year now not teaching and so I'd said oh I'm going to get to sit down with Nancy I'm so excited and she's like yeah ask her how does she go about choosing which book of the bible she's going to teach because Allison is now in a role where she's teaching at her local church Mm -hmm. and so I thought "Hmm, okay I'm going to ask Nancy this question Mm -hmm. how do you go about deciding which book of the bible you're going to teach? Well,
1: a lot of it for me has been centered on publishing. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, the thing is, once I, you know, I, I, my, the book of Hebrews was my first really teaching a book. I mean, my first book was yeah. on the book of Job, because uh, I'd studied it uh, during Hope's Life, and then shared it with my church, and then wrote a book out of it. Uh, my next um, book on a book of the Bible was the book of Hebrews, because I was teaching it at my church, and I didn't know it would become a book. Right. But how did I choose? I'll tell you okay, how I chose it. But because at one point, so I told you about how I'd just been, you know, watching that teacher teach and thought to myself, okay, I might like to do that someday, but I don't know how I'd ever be able to yeah. do that. And so I was hitting a summer, you know, summer when I wouldn't have weekly assignments I would be expected to do. And I thought, you know, so many previous summers, I've barely opened my Bible all summer. And so I was coming to a summer and I just determined, okay, I'm going to take a book of the Bible, and study it like I was going to have to teach it in the fall because you study the Bible very differently when you think you're going to have to teach it to someone else than you do if you're just kind of casually trying to get a little bit out of it and so I spent that summer working through the book of Hebrews I figured out I'd do 10 lessons and I titled them all and I had outlines for them all and I hadn't done a whole lot more than that Um, and then I just stashed it away And it was probably two years later that it was, it was August and at my church, um, the study that they had planned, the person who was going to teach at the last minute couldn't. And they came to me and asked me if I would, they asked me, would you do a survey of the old Testament? At that point I hadn't studied the old Testament at all. I was like, no way I can't do that. I said, but I do have this work I did on Hebrews that I think I could bring to completion to be able to do this full. So I, I I did that at my church. And then, uh, you know, my next pick ever was the Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament Bible study yeah. series. And so, you know, that set a course for five years right. of, of study and work for me because it's five, you know, 10 week studies. Yes. Um, but I think in terms of of what I'm gonna teach, it mostly follows what am I learning and what am I curious about to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I think most people perceive someone becomes an expert on something and then they write a book about it and and that's the case for a lot of people writing i suppose right but for me it's <laughs> almost never been that it's it's always been what's something i want to learn about and really learn like master like get it and then i commit to write a book about it yeah and so then i learn it and i think that helps me as a communicator because then I'm explaining things to fellow learners with me. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm answering the questions that I've just had and had answered right. in a way that I, I think helps my listeners. So, um, you know, you mentioned saints and scoundrels earlier. I just for years had had a curiosity about a few Bible characters, especially John the Baptist. Uh, I think he's a very fascinating character to me. I wanted to see how he fit in with the Old Testament entering into the New Testament. Here's this man who um, he recognized Jesus from the womb so that he left in his mother's womb. He recognized Jesus at his baptism as to what he was going to do, saying he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then he ends up in prison, and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, "Are you the one?" That's right. Or should we be waiting for another? So that all and to be someone about whom Jesus said, "The greatest man ever born of a woman." Oh, wow! So yeah. uh, that and then and he looks
0: so peculiar.
1: Right? Yes, yes, does everything so strangely, right? So I, I guess that project came around just because I, there were there was him and a few other people that I really just wanted to study and understand more myself. So I came up with a way to kind of put all that together uh even better than eden kind of was my next step after the seeing jesus in the old testament series and that understanding these themes and how they bring such unity to the bible and so in even better than eden i just take nine biblical themes and tell the story of the bible from beginning to end according to nine different themes yeah and uh yeah
0: i mean i think that's a good word though because what are you curious about I mean, and it's if you are like, probably other people are too. That's right, and I feel like sometimes when you're curious or passionate about something, again, you will uh, tackle that topic, that book, even differently. I mean, I know that as a podcaster, even a lot of times the people I ask on my show, it's because I'm either curious about what they would come on and talk about their story, their books, their whatever, mm-hmm. or I just want to learn more about a topic. You know, mm-hmm. and so that does make complete sense. Well, to close us out, um, another question is when you're teaching the Bible and you're wanting to make applications, how do you really sort through this? I want to help you apply it to your life, but I don't want to focus so much on moralism, moral behavior all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for that?
1: Yeah. More and more I'm seeing Instead of either or, we need both and. So true. Uh, I think a few years ago, I kind of dissed moral application maybe a little bit too much. So I'm trying to come back to a more balanced place. But I think, I mean, the, the most significant way I was impacted in regard to answer to your question, I listened, you can find this on iTunes if you want. There's a 19 episode series you can find on iTunes that was a class taught by ed Clowney and tim okay. keller at rts called uh preaching in the postmodern world or something like that okay and it's like 19 it's it's you know a series of class lectures over a semester and in there tim keller talked about preaching with an aim to cause his audience to adore christ hmm. I'd never thought about that or considered that as an aim Mm. for teaching, but now it's almost always my aim. Wow. And in so many ways, in so many situations, people will say, well, I need a practical takeaway. In fact, in doing a number of radio interviews, especially radio interviews that, that reach a more generally evangelical audience, talking about God does his best work with empty, I keep I, I've continually gotten pressed what's a practical thing that someone can do, you know in regard to emptiness, which generally means I'm going to take it into my own self to make this happen. And it presumes that coming to a place of adoring Christ more, loving him more, isn't practical. Hmm. And I actually think there's nothing more practical because hmm. all of these other things are going to fall into place.
0: Absolutely. If,
1: if my love for him is increased, if I, hmm. if I admire him more and adore him more and my heart is more engaged with his, hmm. the yep. other things fall into place. But there is, there is a place for looking at, um, at your passage. I mean, the goal of a teacher is to illumine the passage itself. So mm. if the passage lends itself to some things, to some commands yeah. people must follow, if there are maybe not just applications, but implications mm. for your audience you do them such a favor to bring those out and then to call them to obedience, to call them to take hold of a truth and to call them to adore Christ more because of who he is and what he's done. Yeah. All of those things. Uh, so the main goal of a teacher is, not, is, is to take stock of what's in the passage and then accurately, accordingly, present that to listeners so that means we want our message to have the same shape as the passage the same tone as the passage i i find it interesting you know you'll somebody will be speaking on a passage that's maybe very you know has a very harsh tone or maybe it's a very gentle tone or maybe it's a pleading tone you know and 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 that all those messages can kind of sound the same wow our, our our teaching should take on the ethos, the the urgency. Like, I mean, can you imagine teaching Romans 12:1? I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mean, if you don't have a sense of urgency, right, calling people to figure out what it's going to look like them to worship God hmm. in the way that He deserves, based on the mercies that He's shown you you're, you're somehow missing it. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that is so helpful. I mean, it's just helpful to me to think about it in that way. And so thank you, Nancy, so much for your time today. And you're welcome. I just want to make sure listeners know, I mean, the workshops are still going on. And so you can go to nancyguthrie.com. All of the signups are there, correct?
1: Yeah, we'll open registration for 2021 workshops on January 1st. So mark your calendar for then.
0: That's right. And I mean, all the books are there. There's posts and so many helpful things. You can actually find the podcast there. I am not caught up, but there's just, if you want to learn more about one book of the Bible, she has had a guest on to talk about every single book of the Bible. And so sometimes I'm just curious about, oh, I didn't understand that. So I pop over to the podcast and I'm like, I'm going to listen to the, whoever's on that day with you talk about it so that I can learn more. So um, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I really hope you guys loved that conversation as much as I did. Nancy's love for God's word and her adoration of Jesus is so obvious. Everything we talked about is linked in the show notes, including Nancy's biblical theology workshop for women, which I highly recommend. I want to ask you to do something for me. If you've not subscribed in Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and you're liking the show, would you do that for me? And while you're there, would you mind leaving a review of the show? I would love to hear what you think. It really does matter because it's one of the only ways to know how the show is impacting listeners like you. Think of it as an employer sitting down for a year-end review all employees want that review. I mean, unless they're not doing their job, but y'all know I am. So please be nice. Okay. I'll see you back here next week for episode 96, where I sit down with Elisa Childers to discuss truth in response to progressive Christianity. Y'all, it is a conversation you do not want to miss in our current culture.
1: Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time!